continuing on, we're still talking about anger and forgiveness and wrath, uh, that we have to deal with these things. Uh, now, with the Christian, like I say, we're told to forgive if they ask forgiveness and to put them out if they don't want to make things right and they're wrong. Uh, that's the extreme. And now dealing with the world, look at Romans 12, 19. We'll read 18 first, Romans 12. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. We try to be at peace with the world. It's not possible at many times because they persecute us and they hate the Christian, the true Christian. And so they're going to despise you and cause problems, don't matter how good you are to them because there are wicked people out there inspired by the devil. But he says, in general, try to be at peace with people and not get into arguments and, and busybody and getting into things that don't concern you, okay? Beloved, 19, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. So what is he saying? They're going to be worldly people that are going to do something to you and harm you and he didn't say forgive them. That's the world. See, people think you got to forgive everybody. He didn't say that. And even if they ask forgiveness, you're not required. You can let it go and say, oh, that's God's problem. You know, I'm his servant. I'll try not to hold it against you, but I can't clear you with God. That's his business. And so it says down here, do not avenge yourselves when they do you harm, but give place to wrath. It means there is a place for God's wrath and punishment because they have done something evil, and God hasn't forgiven them. Until they repent and confess, he's not going to. And he's going to hold every action that the sinner does, every idle word, they're going to be held accountable for. Every idle word. The minus, the smallest sin they can ever think of, that's going to be held at Judgment Day against the wicked. So that's going to be a severe judgment. They will have forgotten most of it. God has not. Justice and holiness demands this. But it says, give place to wrath. And then he quotes the Old Testament, and it's valid. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The greatest judgment of God during the tribulation period is on the world of sinners that have persecuted Christians. That's going to be the greatest wrath. And when it's poured out, it's the only time we are clearly shown that the high priest Christ is not interceding and nothing is holding back the wrath of God. There is no intercessor. There's no nothing. Because they're wicked, they don't have an intercessor. And God in Christ, the Almighty, he is with him. He's looking down in wrath and anger and will destroy the wicked for what they did, not only against his holiness, but against his people. And when he judges a nation, it's what you did to his Christians or what you didn't do. And he says, whatever you did, you did to me. So as far as Christ is concerned, every sin against you by a wicked person, Christ is taking it as you did that to me. And a holy God is not going to let that slide. Okay, Justice is going to come in. So the Christian is to leave the world alone. We're to pray. We're the servants, the slave of the Lord. If you want us to be tested and punished, then you give us grace. But as far as us retaliating or taking our own vengeance, that's not our place. That's your place. And he's saying, and I will do it. 
So that person that persecutes the Christian, if he doesn't become a Christian, he'll answer for that one day for everything he did. And that's the wrath of God, okay? So Christians need to understand they don't have to forgive certain people uh, under certain conditions. They forgive those. Even the wicked, if they apologize, we can say, oh, yeah, I'm not going to hold it against you. But they can't say God forgives you. That only applies to the Christian. And Jesus told the church and Peter, whomsoever sins you remit, Whoever sends you forgive, they're forgiven, and those you don't, they're not forgiven. That's what he's talking about. But people pass over that. I see these poor sad stories. Family, their daughter's been raped and mutilated and killed, and the guy gets a light sentence, and they're supposed to forgive him. There's no such garbage, and preachers that teach that are going to hell. They have no such garbage. The guy, is he may not be repentant. He may enjoy what he did and do it again if they let him go. But his poor parents, oh, they've got to forgive him. No, there's no such teaching. It's lying shepherds don't know the word of God, and the devil inspires them is what it is to put more guilt on the innocent victims, okay? So uh, do not take vengeance on the outsider, we don't take vengeance on the Christian, but we rebuke and correct, and we can put them out. So we don't have to sit there and be a doormat and let them do what they want to do. Uh-huh. When we're dealing, ministering the gospel, that's when Jesus says you turn the other cheek. You don't fight back and you let them do what they want. But if a Christian slaps you on the face, you can have him put out of the church if he's not repentant and shows some kind of sorrow for what he's done. You can ask the church to remove him because he's a wicked person and he ain't repentant and he's not serving the Lord. So there's things you can do under various circumstances. So we do not take vengeance, personal justice against the world of sinners. Like Paul said, that's God's to judge those outside of the body of Christ. God will avenge at the proper time, and if not in this life, at the day of judgment, every idle word, the books will be opened, all the works, the bad works for the sinner will be there. And because he will not be in the book of life, all of those sins will be held against him. For the Christian, the godly ones, all the works of the good will be attributed to us and will be rewarded. The sins will have been forgiven here on the earth and we will be in the book of life. So there is two separate places for people to go and be dealt with differently. Okay, But he's going to look at the book of life and see who's in that. The other books then are for reward for the righteous and judgment for the wicked. They don't have forgiveness. They have no intercessor. Every evil thing they do, holiness and justice accounts for it. And the Bible says in the New Jerusalem and heaven, evidently the lake of fire is going to be outside of the city somewhere because it says the lamb and the angels will observe the smoke of their torment shall ascend forever. They will look and see. it didn't say they'll see the person. They'll see the smoke, which shows they're being burned and tormented. God will give them a special body to experience his holy wrath. He is the consuming fire to them. And it says the Lamb, Christ, and the angels will look at that as the memorial of God's holiness. 
They're not feeling sorry for him. They're not thinking. They're contempt toward the wicked. God said he despises the wicked soul. Ultimately, he will be despised. His good intentions, his love in this world, he'll deal with them. But once the door of grace closes, he don't show that. They will utter contempt, wrath of God, as Paul said, what we are saved from. The world is not saved from that. He'll have no good thoughts toward them. There'll be no extension of grace or love or anything toward those in the lake of fire. Okay, so that's a bad place for people to go. Now we get to verse 9. Likewise, in the same manner, I want women to adorn themselves or dress with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and jewelry and pearls and costly garments, okay? I've heard many women say, God don't care what you dress like. He most certainly did. He stated it. And if you dress this way, you may not make it into the kingdom. A lot of professing Christians, they're going to be shocked when they don't obey Scripture. And there's a reason for this. The reason he goes to the women first with the dress is because women have the tendency to be more vain with their appearance. Why? Men are mainly appealed at first when they see women, they look for beauty. It's their eyes. Most women of the world, it's what they hear. They're more impressed by what they hear. That's why a beautiful woman will marry an ugly man. If he's got good personality, he treats her right, she don't care about it. Isn't it that important as it is to a man, a woman's appearance? So a woman will deck herself up more to make herself look more desirable. But that's for the world, okay? And so what is he, why does he single them out for that reason? They overdo their clothing and appearance and their makeups and all these things. But he's saying they should be dressed as a holy person, modestly, discreetly. Well, that's going to start limited, isn't it? In other words, not to dress to show off their sexual figure. They should not even be showing that to people to entice and excite lust in other people. Well, that, that pales to the man and the woman. You go to beaches and you see the women almost naked and the men the same way. That's what he's talking about. And I used to debate with some of the uh, women. They were filled with the spirit and they went down to the beach dressed naked. I said, something's wrong here. It wasn't popular. They didn't like listen to me teach anymore. Well, I said, well, that's irregardless. But you can't say you're holy and filled with the spirit when you're vulgar and expressing parts of your body that only your husband or wife should see and strutting around the beach and citing lust in everybody and proud of your your boobs and your butt and all of that. That doesn't go along with being a holy woman filled with the spirit, okay? So I've gone as far to say that. You can see that's one of the reasons I don't have a bunch of people listening to me. Okay, so they dress half naked in public and beaches, and yet they may not make it to the kingdom without God dealing with them first. Paul talks of not overdressing with these. He didn't say you couldn't wear anything, but he's talking about the main, I believe this would be moderation in some things, and God gives us liberty. But again, what is the motive of the heart in this? A wife should not be dressing to incite lust in another man. 
She should not dress dress like a trophy wife. And a man that gets a wife like that, he'll go to hell also. He's no better than she is. And I've known people and counseled them. The man's pride and lust, he wants other men to see, look what I got, look what I got. How do you think that's going to fare at the day of judgment? It's not going to fare very well. Because see, God sees all of this. He sees the motive and the intent. And so women, again, they say God doesn't care. He most certainly does care. And he will judge those acting vain, worldly, and unholy in the sight of others. Because they are worldly-minded. They act like the world. Proverbs says beauty is vain. It says also a beautiful woman that has no discretion is like a pig with a ring in her nose. God is not impressed by it, and he's not impressed with a man's strength and body. Men look more at how strength they are, and women look at their vanity and their beauty. And God said in the natural, it's it's all going to rot in a grave. It's not going on. And no matter how beautiful a woman is and how strong a man is, if they live to be old, that's going to pass away. They're not taking it with them, okay? But rather, so he says now, rather than do all of that dressing and jewelry and and your appearance outward, but rather spend time before the Lord, not dressed to entice and show off your vanity. Paul states in verse 6, but rather let it be good works. And actually, he's talking about spiritual things. Good works, purity, goodness, and respectable behavior. And if a woman's not doing that, she's most likely not a Christian. Oh, she may think she is, and she may go to church, but the outward is important. If you walk around in a neighborhood, you speak with tongues, and you do all these good things, and you're walking around naked all the time, you think that's going to give you any credit with God? James said, he that stumbles at one point of the law, a major sin, he said, it nullifies all the rest. It only takes the one Gross sin to send you to hell if you practice it. The rich young ruler did everything well, but he loved his money. And that was covetousness and idolatry. And so he couldn't follow the Lord. And I've known Bible teachers that came to me years ago and excellent teachers, and they were still teaching. They taught me things. And all of a sudden, they're confessing to me they've been having an affair, an adulterous affair, for three years. Yet he could teach wonderfully. And he was still doing all the good deeds and giving. And you know, that didn't mean nothing to God. He considered it an abomination, the sacrifices of the wicked. And he considered it hypocrisy. So he didn't need nothing from them. They insult his presence. Uh-huh. And so he was only saying, he told me, oh, you know, I do good and I give my tithes and a bum. And I, uh, I said, but you're in fornication and adultery. And he was trying to, like the world does, bargain and I'll do some good to make up for my bad. It don't work that way. So if you're guilty of the major gross sin, and Paul names 18 of them or more, he said, and he goes down the line, he names a lot of things. And he said, if you practice these things, If that's your way of life, I think after three years having an affair, it's your way of life. I'm not talking about falling into sin and getting out. I'm talking about this practicing. He said, if you practice such things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you're not a Christian. See? And you're not going to go to heaven when you die. You're going to hell. 
And people love the, the false teachers. Well, that don't mean that. It means you won't enter your spiritual principles. To inherit the kingdom means after you're dead. So it's talking about heaven. It ain't talking about anything on the earth. But see, they twist the scripture, as Peter said, to their own destruction. Well, you don't understand, once saved, always saved. I said, no, you're going to be once lost, always lost at the end. And you've been deceived, and you want to believe lies. So God lets the spirits lie to you, and you have no protection because you don't want the truth. So people who don't want the truth are given over the lying spirits, ultimately. So one sin, gross sin, will send you to hell if that's your lifestyle. And see, the world don't like that. That's why they try to do some good. A lot of the mafia people years ago, they'd leave a lot of money to the Catholic Church when they died, thinking it's going Mary might pray for them, might help somebody, that they might make it. And they know they were murderers and thieves and extortionists their whole life. But they were hoping, well, their hope was false. God was not going to forgive them, okay? Because there was no true repentance. Worldly sorrow works death. Godly sorrow works repentance. So when the person's caught before the judge for a crime, he's sorry he got caught. And he's sorry because he knows he's going to be punished. But many of them, if the judge says, I'm afraid of it, he go out there and live the same way he did before. He'll still rob and steal. Uh-huh. But the repentant one stops and changes. And he shows that by his actions. So most of them, they don't have no true repentance. They're just sorry they got caught and they're going to be punished. But they're still evil and their nature's still evil. Okay? So we see that grace is given for us to have liberty to do right. It's not given to have a license to sin as the heretics teach. It was liberty to do right and good and not have to be brought under all of the forms of the law. Paul said that we and our fathers couldn't even keep it. All the rules and sacrifices, Christians freed from this. The only two things the Christian has to do outwardly is be baptized when he becomes a Christian in water. And when he takes the Lord, it doesn't say when he takes it or how often he takes it. It said those are the only two things he gave. To the Christian. Now, some argue there's a third. They call it foot washing. Some of the Pentecostals believe you have to do that. Well, again, people go to little extremes when the scripture's not plain on certain things. But we're free. We're free to observe every day as being holy. We're not bound by moons and feasts and Lent and Christmas. We, we don't even have to. Christmas is a pagan holiday. Jesus was not born during that time. And if we go study that, it's a Catholic teaching that came from a Babylonian cult. Nothing to do with Jesus. But the church took on these things. That's why it's called the great whore. She mixes with anything. Mixes Christian teaching with pagan teaching. Easter. We still say Easter. We should be saying as Christians, Resurrection Day, if you want to. They support it every Sunday. When they met in the churches the first day of the week, and even that wasn't commanded, they could meet at other times. And they celebrated that as the resurrection. Easter is the goddess Esther, the goddess of fertility. That's why you have the Easter bunny and eggs. And it's nothing new with Christianity. It's a pagan religion. 
that they mixed with Christianity. She's a pagan goddess. Her religion was very promiscuous and sexual, and we still say Easter. So you can tell you how, how much the denominational churches over the 2,000 years, the world has taken them over. That's what's happened, okay? So we have liberty and freedom, but not to sin. We're not given license to sin. We're given power over the sin. Grace is so you can live godly and please the Lord, and the Spirit helps us that is in us. He helps us do these things that we could not do. And those are the spiritual works he's talking about, not your human efforts, self-righteousness to try to please God on your own, like the Pharisees did. Okay, so grace is not given to promote evil, vanity, self-gratification, or any kind of sinful behavior, okay? Verse 11, Uh, we get some more trouble here. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Well, nowadays they're equal in the government, the church, and everything, and they quote scriptures. It doesn't pull no water, okay? And the next verse will tell it, but this one. A Christian woman is to be a receiver of teaching, not a public teacher. She can share if she knows scripture. She may be more spiritual than her husband, but she cannot rule him. She cannot teach him with authority. She cannot do that in a true church. Nowadays, they have lesbians being pastors and rectors of churches promoting homosexuality. That's the extreme it's gone to, okay? So the woman, and it may be offensive, she is not to rule in the church nor in the home. Well, that makes them agitated there. We're co-workers with our husband. We're equal. And they quote that scripture, there's neither male nor female. That's only as a child of God. But as far as authority on earth, there is a difference. And the male is superior and the woman is not in that authority. And it hasn't changed. So we may offend many, but that's the way it is. Even the Lord said there'll be some, and maybe some women, they will teach and they will do things and maybe they'll exert more authority and rule. And it may not get them in hell, But Jesus made a statement. If you teach things that are wrong, he wasn't talking about al-al heresy, but misguided. He said, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So it doesn't matter how spiritual you are and how well you teach, you're not going to get no reward for that. It's going to be counted by God as wood, hay, and stubble. Like the man, the pastor I knew, who was a great teacher and was having an affair for three years, he taught wonderfully once and twice a week. And I'm sure a lot of people got benefit from it, but he did not get any. See, God honors his word, and he can use things, his word, but the man's getting no reward. Everything will be wood, hay, and stubble, and eventually it won't be nothing, because if he is continuing it, he's not a Christian, and he'll get God's wrath. He won't get any kind of good rewards. Okay, so nowadays we hear the the women a lot of times that they have equal rights. They again misquote scripture and they are independent even in the governments. 
25% of our senators are women. You see where our country's going, don't you? Okay, and so equal rights and independent government. You know, the first sin was independence. Satan decided to be, Lucifer decided to be independent of God. Instead of being the light bearer, and that's what Lucifer meant, he wanted to be the light. He wanted to set up a throne and be a God also. He wanted to be independent of God. And that was the first sin his pride led him to, those sins, okay? And where did he get him? He got cast out, and he has no position in heaven, okay? So Paul in the church, and the church, people say, well, I don't listen to Jesus. Well, you're a fool, and you don't know Scripture. Because Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, and that was at Pentecost, he said, he's going to teach you things I can't tell you. You're not able to bear. But when the Spirit comes, which was him, he is the Spirit, he's going to enter them, he said, I'm with you and I shall be in you. I'll guide you into all truth. So he was taking them beyond the old covenant. But it couldn't be done until he gave up his life and resurrected. So we're better and have more instruction under the epistles than the gospel. The Gospels laid the foundation like the law did. And then the epistles explain these things more clearly, okay? And so Paul in the church, the gatherings, did not permit women in ruling places. They did not hold fivefold offices. Oh, they don't like that one. But if you read the epistles, you'll not find one woman who was an apostle or a prophetess. She did not hold prophetess as an office. She was called a prophetess because she prophesied. But all Christians under the Spirit can prophesy, but all uh, do not have the office of a prophet. And you do not find any of them. And Mary was not queen of heaven, queen of the apostles. She didn't rule. She didn't do anything. We don't see anything about her after Pentecost because she was a submissive woman and she didn't go around teaching and preaching to men. Okay? So that's, again, perversions of teachings, okay? And so uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, past teachers in the gathering of the church as a whole were not permitted. Now, people debate, and it might be true, in small gatherings, women could do a lot more. Because Paul did say that if a woman prophesies, she should not cover her head. So somewhere she prophesied. Prophecy means to speak forth the word of God. It's not always, thus saith the Lord, it's inspirational sharing the word and teaching. So evidently there were some places she could do that. But when the, all the gathering churches and home churches came together, Paul did not. He said, we to church don't permit this. They're to be quiet, okay? So that's it. They can argue all they want. They cannot govern over their husbands, okay? And what does Paul say God likes? A meek and quiet spirit was a precious thing in God's eyes and not an aggressive attitude in private or public. A woman was made for man not to rule, but help. That was the order of God. That was before sin. She was made for him to be a helpmate. She wasn't made a helpmate and secondary because she sinned. This is before Sin came in authority struck. Certain angels have certain authority over other angels, seraphims and cherubims. Lucifer, he was the chief of angels and cherubs. Uh-huh. That was his position at one time.
verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, people say, well, that was Paul. Other ministers can allow it. No, he is speaking as an apostle. And when he speaks as an apostle and he makes it clear he's not sharing his opinion like on marriage, it means it's the word of the Lord. So he is establishing the foundation for the Gentile Christian church. And so wherever he went, this is what he taught. And the Jewish apostles didn't allow it either. And when they went to the synagogues and they had their home meetings, they didn't allow women to do this either. So if they go research this properly, it would deal with the rebellious spirit, okay? He did not allow women to publicly teach or govern over a man, especially her husband. Women can be in the Lord longer. They can be in the Lord longer and more mature than their husbands who may be a babe. But she still cannot rule him, and she cannot dispute with him. And that's why Paul said a Christian woman can win her unbelieving husband without a word. She don't need to instruct or teach him. If she lives right and holy, it's going to impress him, or he'll want to get away from it. But it says without a word. That's Paul saying, don't be preaching to him. If he's not interested, don't you stop putting this stuff on him. That'll turn him away. Because even the heathen understood the place that women had in the public, okay? People can change it all they want, but God doesn't change it, okay? So in the gathering of fellowship, several churches, home churches coming together, Paul expected women to be quiet. Where men can discuss and debate and correct and even openly disagree, they can do that, even in the church. And Paul said when they come together, he said, let the prophet speak two or three. He didn't say prophetess. He said, let them speak and let the others judge, the other prophets. Even they were to evaluate what a true prophet was saying because they knew the devil could slip in there and slip him a mickey or his humanity could get in at the moment and he could say something he shouldn't have said. As they were to evaluate this, and if they saw something wrong, they spoke up and said, uh-uh. And they took it once they were instructed. So, But that was, like I say, even the prophets had to be corrected by prophets, not by any other person in the assembly, because they had the ministry, and they had the insight and the revelation that most of the people didn't have that deep. And so they were very careful, again, dealing with each other according to their authority. And Paul said in the body of Christ, overall, the apostle and the prophets are chief in authority. That means all teachers and pastors and churches, see, because often the apostle established churches. He was a pioneer. He traveled, but he'd come back like Paul and check on things. And he could remove elders and pastors. The church recognized their apostle. And the prophet could do the same. He could rebuke and remove by the word of the Lord. But other pastors and elders could not do this. They were limited to what they could do. Uh -huh. But then they understood who their apostles were. Nowadays, you're not going to find many, okay? That stone them to death, most likely, in the churches, okay? So a man, even in a synagogue, 
it had to be so many men there to have a meeting. And they could stand and share scripture as Jesus did in the synagogue. And they could debate each other. And if one was sharing something in his opinion, another would stand up and say, well, I don't see that. So they could debate. A woman was not permitted to do this. She was to be quiet. She was not to challenge a man's authority. Even in the Roman world, there were powerful women, senators' wives and families. They had lots of power, but they couldn't display it publicly. If they did, they would shame their father and husband, and they would have been put away somewhere. They wouldn't have been. But in their private homes and the gathering families, they ruled the roost often. But they didn't dare do it publicly. The Greeks, the Romans, the church didn't permit this. So it was a very common thing. And just because we permit it doesn't mean God permits it or he allows it, okay, in the spiritual realm. So verse 13, why? See, again, not because of the, even the woman's opinion or her authority. He didn't mention nothing like that. Some women say, well, we have to do it because men aren't doing it. God doesn't excuse you. He doesn't call you to do a man's work. That's unscriptural. He's not going to do it. Because there is no pastor, God is not going to call a woman to be a pastor. He don't work that way. He lets it go undone. He takes the lampstand away. Okay? Verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Okay? 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So he's stating two facts here. The man was created, and then Genesis says the woman was a helpmate. God said that's where he made her for. And then when it came to sin, the woman sinned first. Okay? But we're going to find out that Adam's sin was greater because he was the authority. And it's called, we'll repeat it later, the son of Adam. It's not called the son of Eve. The Roman Catholic system, they blame the women for all of this. They never mention much of Adam. And all the priests, so many of them centuries ago, adulterers and homosexuals, but they didn't allow women to do anything because the devil used them. Wait, what do you think those men are now? Okay, so in 13, like I say, Adam was created first before the fall of man. And the woman, her name Eve meant life. She was created to be a helpmate for the man. A what? A helpmate. His authority and duty to God was superior than hers. And he was made for that. She was made to help him. That's what God's ministry was for her. That was before the fall. So that sort of rebukes a lot of these stupid women who are trying to find a way to twist scripture so they can rule men. It's not going to happen. Okay, let's go ahead and stop here because the next verse I'm going to spend a lot of time with. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding. Help us rightly divide the word and give us instruction on the questionable things and things that we have liberty for and things we don't have liberty for. In Jesus' name, amen.